when we have a an ability to communicate, I and mean, if you just look in the humanitarian sector, for example, if you if you really want to expand our geopolitical discussion, understanding what individual people in other countries are going through makes the world a very small place. And instead of uh, some remote person suffering somewhere that you can't see, that person is now in your backyard. The images are instant, and it's easy to even reach out and communicate with people that in the past, in, in only a decade ago, we would have never had any contact with even remotely, unless maybe the evening news showed us the picture. So yes, it does make the world a, a much smaller place. But if we want to go get back to espionage, it also aids and abets the spies who can leverage this extreme ability to communicate at such a rapid pace to share information, to exploit all sorts of new technologies in order to become more efficient and faster in how we share information and communicate. That's a playground for the spies. That makes things very easy for them. Hey guys, before we get started, I want to tell you about today's show sponsor, Carta. Carta simplifies how startups manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. Go to carta.com slash syndicate to get 10% off and learn more about how they can help you with managing your complicated cap table and keeping investors happy. You probably know I'm big on biohacking and trying to make myself the best I can be. That's why I'm excited about what the guys at Neurohacker Collective and Daniel Schmachtenberger, who was previously on the podcast, are doing. They're some of the smartest biohackers on the planet, and their Qualia line of brain-enhancing nootropics make it obvious why. You guys can get 15% off any order, or with a subscription, 50% off and 15% off every future order by going to disruptors.fm slash qualia, that's Q-U-A-L-I-A, and using coupon code disruptors at disruptors we're big on health and biotech for a reason it amplifies everything disruptors.fm slash qualia use coupon code disruptors hey i wanted to take a quick time out to tell you about a little project i've been working on i've been working on a sci-fi novel focused on the future of humanity and what happens when we get deeper and deeper into genetic engineering and cybernetic enhancements it's something that i've been working on it's a bit of a passion project and i haven't wanted to tell you guys about it yet because it's one of those things where you never really know if you're going to publish it well now i'm getting so far along in the novel and really starting to love the direction that it's going i wanted to get some feedback from some of you guys so if you're interested in checking out the beta version so to speak of the novel you can get the first five Five chapters for free if you go to disruptors.fm slash book. Just add your email address. I need your hard, honest feedback on the book and how you like it, if you like it, and what, if anything, I could do to improve it. That's the only way that authors and writers and thinkers like myself can try to improve what we're working on and make it more interesting and exciting for the public. So if you guys are interested in this, check out the book. You can go to disruptors.fm slash book. Enter your email address. You'll get the first five chapters emailed to you. It's much further along than that, but I want to just send you the first five chapters so that you don't get overwhelmed and you can provide me a little bit of feedback. And if you like the book, you'll be on the first access list for when it goes live. There may be some bonus beta coupons as well that get handed out for people that help with making the book uh, a better, more awesome experience. So if that's something that you're interested in looking into, the future of humanity and what happens when genetic engineering goes vastly awry, then disruptors.fm slash book. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate your help on this. This is something that I'm pretty passionate about. It's pretty personal and not sure how it's going to turn out yet. Disruptors.fm slash book. And now back to our episode. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-da-dum. I don't know about you, but I love a good spy thriller, and today we've got an incredible one. Catching the most notorious spy in U.S. history, and why James Bond is now just a hacker. Today we've got Eric O'Neill on the program. He's an accomplished speaker, security expert, and author. He often keynotes on espionage, national security, cybersecurity, corporate hacking, and he's survived Hollywood. He worked as an FBI counterterrorism and counterintelligence operative, and in February 2001, he helped capture the most notorious spy in U.S. history, Robert Philip Hansen. In the three months preceding to the arrest, he was selected to work with a spy, gain his trust, and then draw the traitor out, James Bond style. This one is fun, and we'll discuss much of that and more, including how espionage has evolved since the Cold War, why cyber warfare is the spying of today, the reason terrorism has such an outsized impact on public policy and society, 
how to prevent the U.S. from becoming a surveillance state, the lasting impacts of Edward Snowden, and the truth about Huawei. Before we get started, got a really quick announcement. The Disruptors is partnering up with Aubrey de Grey to offer you guys a free, limited-time, signed copy of Ending Aging, Aubrey's book. If you want to get a copy of that, you can enter into our sweepstakes. Just go to disruptors.fm aging, that's A-G-I-N-G, aging, and you can register to win this book. There's a lot of different ways that you can enter and get more chances to win from following us on Twitter to subscribing on YouTube and a whole bunch of other things that you can do. But if you're interested in getting a free signed copy of Aubrey's book, go to disruptors.fm aging and you can enter to win there. Aubrey was a really interesting guy. It was incredible having him on the podcast to be able to have one of the leading longevity researchers in the world. The giveaway will be running from January 29th to February 5th. So you have one week from the release of this podcast episode essentially to enter make sure that you do that and take action if you want to get this book signed from aubrey himself right to you again that's disruptors.fm aging for more details and how you can register and of course no purchase necessary but what if you're listening to this after the sweepstakes has ended don't worry we're actually partnering with a lot of the past authors on our podcasts to offer some free books for you guys so while it may not be aubrey's book if you go to disruptors.fm giveaway whatever is the most recent giveaway that we're doing now if there's one that's currently running live, you can register to win right there. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash giveaway. And now let's get on with the episode. Without further ado, I give you Eric O'Neill. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. The first thing I wanted to kind of dive into is the let's let's actually you know what let's dive into the most recent and up to date up to date stuff so in terms of in terms of spying let's talk about huawei and the the rivalry or apparent issues that are propping up between the u.s and china where do you see that right now these days well we're at a all-time low as far as the geopolitical tensions between the two countries and one reason for this you know if you separate out all of the trade issues which have been ongoing for as long as there have been two superpowers it has a lot to do with the very aggressive, uh, extremely aggressive cyber espionage that China has routinely over the last number of years perpetrated against the United States. They have a, a interest in stealing our technology in order to improve their own economy. And we call that economic espionage. And it's been a very large focus of their military and civilian spy agencies for about a decade. And they've been incredibly successful with it in terms of coming up to speed. In a lot of areas now, China is actually surpassing the US and other tech giants. It's a uh, it's very interesting. Do you think do you think right now the the hype and a lot of what's getting put out by the State Department about Huawei? Do you think that's more based off of fact or based off of kind of like when we decided to say, okay, sorry, you can't fly from Muslim countries with a laptop type deal? <laughs> I think that there is a combination of both. One is uh, one part of it is fear, but there are facts. Usually, when they take that extreme measure, including having Canada assist in the arrest of their CFO and the daughter of the founder, there are some facts behind it. I'm not sure exactly what those are, but China ha has been notorious in the past for embedding spy devices within technology that they know are going to be shipped around the world, including routers uh, in one recent case, uh, that they can activate and steal information. And, and for a country that has such a need to continue to steal economic information, technology from other developed countries in order to support their own economy, uh, we, we can expect that these sorts of things are, are going to continue to happen. And into the future, uh, unless we figure out a way to stop uh, espionage, not only from China, but from many other countries, then this is just going to become the new normal. So we are entering this new era where we also have the world is so much more interconnected than it has or has been. Do you think that's leading to as well uh, a deep Increase in, I mean, we're seeing increased tension between countries now, which is a result of a, f a few things. But I'm curious to get your take on the overall direction, at least seems to be positive. Well, I think so. I, when we have a an ability to communicate. And if you just look in the humanitarian sector, for example, if you if you really want to expand our geopolitical discussion, understanding what individual people in other countries are going through makes the world a very small place. And instead of uh, some remote person suffering somewhere that you can't see, that person is now in your backyard. The images are instant and it's easy to even reach out and communicate with people that in the past, in, in only a decade ago, we would have never had any contact with even remotely, unless maybe the evening news showed us the picture. 
So yes, it does make the world a, a much smaller place. But if we want to go get back to espionage, it also aids and abets the spies who can leverage this I- extreme ability to communicate at such a rapid pace to share information, to exploit all sorts of new technologies in order to become more efficient and faster in how we share information and communicate. That's a playground for the spies. That makes things very easy for them. And now the, the technological secrets are almost more valuable than the governmental ones of past with how big corporations are getting these days. Do you see as much corporate espionage? Oh, sure. I mean, espionage at all levels. You know, for some time now, I have been saying that there are no hackers, there are only spies. And the reason I like to say that is I want to elevate the thinking of anyone who is interested in security into not worrying about some lone hacker. You know, you you have the image of some kid sitting in a basement hammering away at a keyboard. That's become more and more fiction than fact. The truth is, that as we took data that used to be primarily in paper, right, and we and, and we started to upload it into computer systems and now share it across the cloud and have instant access to any information we want from wherever we are, uh, which means that we're creating multiple endpoints that access that data. We've created a system where uh, those who want to steal the data or use the data or exploit the data or disrupt the data uh, or attack that data can do so from wherever they are as well. So spies had to evolve. They old days of having spies in dark alleys and making sig- setting signals and servicing dead drops and sneaking out of embassies and avoiding surveillance, all that stuff I used to do in the FBI is, is now way changed because those spies had to evolve to become cyber spies. And that's what we're seeing today. We're seeing large groups of espionage units that are fully funded and have some of the most sophisticated equipment, software, and uh, attack solutions that are in other countries and don't even have to cross borders in order to attack. And this is why today we can have one hundredth or one thousandth of as many NSA officers as the KGB needed just to monitor just to monitor the Soviet Union, but they're able to monitor the entire world. Does that scare you? Uh, of course, I think that one of the problems that we have here in the United States is we're way behind the curve. And one of the re- one of the theories I have is that uh, at the end of the Cold War, when we thought we won, Russia just continued fighting. They just changed the battleground, and because they knew that they were never going to beat us with a kinetic, you know, a force military, no tanks and guns and missiles were ever going to beat the United States. They changed uh, to a cyber attack capability. And we're seeing, you know, 2016 was the apex of seeing what they can do and how they can exploit that. The fact of the matter is that isn't the first time we've ever seen it. Back in the late 80s, they were exploiting computer systems within government agencies. And everyone else has caught on. If you look at North Korea, they don't even have the money to truly build a military. And there's no there's no real sense that anything that they were going to try to launch would even work. But it's far cheaper and you get much higher return if you just you exploit the capabilities of graduates in that country with a computer degree to become part of a personal cyber army uh, that can launch attacks wherever they want. And they are very focused on critical infrastructure attacks, for example, because they're angry and they truly dislike the West. And then, of course, you have China, uh, who leverages all of their cyber know-how and their cyber attack capability to quietly steal information and improve their economic base by perfecting and rushing technology out before we can. So they're using the United States as a farm, a technology farm. So all of this means that we need to get better and we need to get better faster. And cybersecurity is the key. And we're failing miserably at that because there's almost no penalty for corporations putting out crappy or poorly protected products. Sure. Like, for example, we do not here in the United States have a regulation that is like the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation in the European Union, although the European Union has push that on many of the American companies. And that, of course, was created to protect private information of individuals, that PII that that leaks in literally every breach that happens, the most recent being the Starwood Marriott breach, 500 million records of individuals that were released and stolen. So, and and there, of course, the Chinese. And and so, so we do need some sort of regulation that protects individuals who lose their data. But even before that, I mean, we need better cybersecurity for all these companies, and they have to be held accountable. But our U.S. government as well. We, we and, and you're seeing that. You're seeing this massive investment in cyber companies. You're seeing this massive investment by companies in better cybersecurity. And, and the technology is advancing in leaps and bounds. 
So you talked a little bit about how the age of spying has evolved a bit. I know you were involved in the FBI. You helped track down what the Justice Department or one of those big three-letter agencies called the worst the worst mistake in U.S. intelligence history. And I wanted to go back to that a bit. Tell, talk course. to me about your spy hunter days. Yeah. So um, my background is as an FBI ghost. I was an investigative specialist is the official term uh, and member of the special surveillance group for the FBI. I followed spies and terrorists 24-7, primarily here in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., a.k.a. the spy capital of the world. And so what I would do from uh, sunup to sundown and sometimes overnight was track individuals that were known or suspected of espionage or terrorism, and we'd stop them before they could do whatever bad act they were going to do. And sometimes that was years following certain targets, and other times it would be much more short duration engagements. And of course, I had all the cool gadgets and and specialized training and driving and photography and and using uh, different ways of tracking targets without being seen, including disguise and these over large camera kits that I would carry in the back of my car. But at the very end of that of that time, uh, as it turned out in the FBI, I was asked to work a very uh, different kind of case, one that no one that was trained like myself had ever worked before, and that was to go undercover within the FBI's headquarters to to track and then uh, hopefully catch, and we ended up did catch, the, what turned out to be the worst spy in U.S. history, which was Robert Hansen, a very senior FBI employee, a special agent that had breached the FBI's computer systems for years without the FBI knowing, stole information and provided it to Russia for over 22 years. And in fact, Robert Hansen turned out being our first cyber spy in addition to our worst spy. And uh, the FBI had some problems uh, in that he was about to retire. They only had a slim file of information that identified him as potentially the spy that they thought they were after, that we had been after for two decades. And they had to do something that was going to keep him in the FBI, keep him engaged, but also give him access to information so he could continue to spy and we could hopefully catch him red-handed. And when the FBI looked around in the year 2000, for someone who understood counterintelligence, someone who was a spy hunter, they only found one other person who met all those criteria but could also turn on a computer. And that happened to me. me. So they pulled me out of the street. They put me in a position uh, that I wasn't trained for. And they uh, they gave me a pretty heavy task, which was find out if he is the spy we're after. And once you figure that out, find a way that we can catch him. And uh, somehow I managed to do both of those tasks. How do you deal with the stress of being handed a, a situation like that? <laughs> yeah, it, it. I didn't realize quite how stressful the situation was until I very recently I wrote a book that's coming out in March where I detailed at a very personal level exactly what it was like to be within that case. And in in writing the book, I I finally had, you know, a decade later, this massive catharsis of of realizing just what this case did to my life, uh, to my marriage, which which continue. I continue to be married and we have three children now, so we survived that. But, you know, at at the end of the day, when you're within that investigation, the investigation comes first. And that's why so many undercover operatives have problems in their personal life. Their marriages fall apart because everything else must be sacrificed to win. And when you're face to face with the target, you can't show him those problems that you're feeling. You can't show him that stress because the question would be, well, what are you stressed for? Uh, so you end up bringing that home and it, it can be very disruptive for friends and families. And, uh, you know, add to that the fact that one thing that that didn't make the movie breach is that I was in law school every night while I was working that case. So, you know, it's hard enough to be in night school and work a full-time job. You add to that being one of the focal points of a intelligence operation to catch what turned out to be the worst spy in US history and you've got a recipe for disaster. Uh, so, I, I like to I like to say I didn't just achieve my goals in the case, I survived them. So, law school, what made you decide to put yourself through that misery at this time? <laughs> well, I had already been in law school for a few years before I was asked to do this case. I had decided at some point while I was working with the SSG that I needed a higher degree if I wanted to truly advance in the FBI. And I was considering coming, uh, graduating law school and coming back as a Justice Department attorney or an FBI attorney. There are FBI attorneys who are also special agents. And then, of course, the justice attorneys get to do some pretty extraordinary prosecutions. 
of bad guys. And so I had this idea that I would go to school at night and continue working for the FBI. And that, that of course, ended up being harder than, than I thought. And uh, I, I still got the grades. It, it was just a, a lot of uh, enormous extra work. I, I try to convince anyone who asks me, you know, I'm thinking of going to law school. How should I do it? I say, beg, borrow, and steal and be a day student. You'll have a lot more fun. But but yeah, I managed to do it. it, it you know, sometimes you just sort of pull together and, uh, and do what you can in order to succeed. So the grind, basically, you hated your life at this point. So you, you said uh, you said <laughs> you said the movie Breach is based off of your story. Yeah. So in 2007, Universal uh, Pictures released a. Uh, a critically acclaimed movie, which I was really happy about, titled Breach, which is about my experiences within the Hansen investigation. I'm played by Ryan Phillippe in the movie, and Robert Hansen is played by Chris Cooper. And Laura Linney plays Kate Alleman, who was the special agent who was in charge of making sure I didn't screw up too badly. And uh, you know that came out in 2007. Uh, I, I got a little bit of notoriety after that, obviously. And finally, now uh, in 2019, I'm writing the book that normally comes before the movie uh, because I wanted to truly tell the the story of of how we caught Robert Hansen from an insider's perspective. So you follow me in a first person narrative, but I also wanted to explain in the rubric of that story everything you need to know about how espionage has evolved and why all espionage is now cyber attacks. How close was the movie to the actual the actual truth? And then and it's an in general type thing. When you look at Hollywood, what's real, what's fake in terms of the spy stuff that people are seeing? Is there a certain movie that you would say is the 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 point to of this is kind of a bit closer to how things are than like the James Bond-esque deal? Right. Well, there aren't very many spy movies that actually get it right. Hollywood is Hollywood. Even Breach, which I think is the closest in how we conducted an, es- an espionage investigation, uh, added a lot of Hollywood aspects. The good news is that Billy Ray, who who took a, another draft of the screenplay, and uh, he's one of the three writers, but also directed the movie, was very interested in that central story of how I was able to be successful and gathering the information that eventually led to the rest of Robert Hansen. And at the end of the day, what he realized and, and what it, it took me a little while longer to realize, and, and, and this fact startled me, was the FBI truly put two, per, two people in that room, you know, if you will, the good guy and the bad guy, knowing that only one of us was going to come out okay. And the hope, of course, and their bet was that it was going to be me. That's really the central theme of the movie. But it was also the central theme of that investigation and all investigations. You you have to hunt threats before they hunt you because only one of either the spy hunter or the spy are going to win. And um, uh, and the movie is truly about, the core of the movie is about how we were able to win. And I think that's the core of the military in general is there is very much of a, a win-lose us versus them mentality. Do we get to a point in the world where we can evolve beyond that? Because I think it's something that ultimately is detrimental to humanity. Yeah, that would be nice. The problem is that people are aggressive. And you need defenders manning the wall until that stops. I don't know how we get to a point where countries aren't making war on each other. The war has changed now. It's a much more subtle series of attacks. We, you know, if, if you take terrorism out of it, which which is a, another kind of warfare, countries are still going at war with each other. They, they do it through trade. They do it through espionage primarily. And cyber attacks are, are a new battleground. If you want to think of a World War III, it is happening right now, It's but it's happening in in cyberspace. So I think that if we want to look to the future, uh, I think that technology will help solve some of these problems, but it will take uh, it will take supremely advanced technology that allows the world to share in resources in a way that uh, we're just not able to right now. If we solve the energy problem, for example, I think that that would go a long way. It, once there isn't something that everybody wants because everybody has it, then uh, then I think we might see fewer borders. But right now, with the amount of of adverse series that are are everywhere from angry to jealous to just want to use the US for whatever they can get out of us. We need those defenses. We need to man the walls because we have a goal to protect our citizens, but also the values in our way of life. What about when that counteracts with other people's way of life? So a lot of the people, I'd, I would say a lot of the people that hate us in the world hate us for pretty good reason point. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there some, there's some of that. There's some reason behind it. But you know, at the, at the end of the day, I guess I come at this from someone who my career and my training was in the FBI. You know, my my job was to protect us domestically. I, I didn't worry as much about what was happening overseas until it came over here. And uh, and then I wanted to stop the bad guys from doing what they're doing here. Uh, you know, that's part of the goal. Now, diplomacy is the other half of that, where 
we are supposed to be aligning uh, with other countries. But then if you look at the world, there are there are people in the world who align with our values and our interests. And there are there are those in the world, like, for example, Iran, that's that is just completely opposed to a United States. Everything that we stand for doesn't work for how certain people that run that country want it to be run. And North Korea is another. In many respects, currently, China with their government is the same. Now, China is uh, far more evolved than the, the other two countries I just mentioned, because they realize that the way that they can get to dominance is through economic power. And that's a game that we can play as well. But some countries just want to see us destroyed because we're a threat to them. Economic power is a game we can play, but I don't know if it's a game we can win for for the foreseeable future. Yeah, unless we start protecting our in, our technology from getting uh, stolen. You know, we still have some of the, the brightest minds. And part of the reason is, is that we, we are still that melting pot of people from all over the world. Uh, the best and the brightest still come here. The problem is that uh, sometimes we don't keep them and other times uh, the best and the brightest are reporting back with that information to to their respective countries. But but I, I still look, I, I will always beat the drum for the United States. And, uh, and you know, and I, I still feel very patriotic that way. I just think that we need to focus on protecting ourselves. And, and you know, the, the area that I'm looking at as a spy hunter is protecting us from spies. And I think that's something everyone can get behind. Otherwise, we end up with what we had in 2016, which never should have happened. Um, oh, God. Um, and what I'm talking about there is, is Russia attacking our election and just causing all sorts of, of intense damage that we're still unpacking today. Everything, everything that, it, that constantly makes the news today uh, points back to just those actions during a, a pretty uh, wild election. I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Carta. As a founder, investor, or startup employee, you know that most of the wealth in the tech industry, it comes from equity. It's not from salary. But how you manage equity, how we manage equity, it's broken. It can be complicated to figure out who owns how much of a startup and to share that important information and documents between companies and VCs. And for VCs to see how investments are performing real time, that's incredibly important for raising your next fund. Many investors and companies still use spreadsheets, paper certificates, and slow-moving service providers to keep that kind of information on hand and to share with prospective investors. These tools and services that are used to manage equity, they're dated, they're slow, and it's funny given that VCs and CEOs are the ones creating the future. Picarda fixes the cap table equity management problem. They offer cap table management, valuations, full-service fund administration, all in one platform. More than 600,000 employee shareholders from companies and VCs at firms like Slack, Coinbase, Flexport, August Capital, Founders Fund, all these guys and more, they use Carta to manage hundreds of billions of dollars in equity. To simplify how you manage equity, use Carta. Get 10% off today at carta.com slash syndicate. It'll help you with simplifying the cap table, which will make it easier for you to raise money as a startup and easier for investors to get on board. Carta.com slash syndicate. So let me play devil's advocate, though. Isn't this something that the U.S. tries to do in, if we're being honest, almost all elections around the world? Sure. So for the most part, though, what has always happened during elections, um, it's happened to us, we do it to others, is we steal information. So that's what spies do, what, what RCIA does, what all other foreign spy agencies, NSA, etc., is we try to gain an advantage, advantage against other nations by learning as much as we can about them. That's the goal of a spy. And of course, our spies are the good guys, their spies are the bad guys, and vice versa. It really just depends on where you plant your flag. What Russia does, though, is they take it a step further. They, they don't play by the rules. It's one thing to steal a memo and learn about policy decisions that the next president, uh, when elected, may enact uh, ahead of time so you can prepare for them. Uh, it's another thing to leverage social media, a, a relatively new technology in, in terms of espionage, in order to, to change people's minds, to create fear and uncertainty, to create a situation where many Americans suddenly question whether their vote matters or whether it can be changed. Even though a lot of people like me were trying to stand up and, uh, and, and I was on CNN and Fox News and a lot of evening news, and there are many like me saying, no one can change your vote. They're just trying to make you afraid. That's, that's really not playing by the rules at all. The, the rules of the great game of espionage. That, that in, in my mind, was an act of war. But like, I, and I like to play devil's advocate. I'm, I'm very skeptical of a lot of the U.S.'s past 
past in terms of installing specific dictatorships, etc., that were more favorable to us. Is this not just a different way of playing an equally treacherous game? It can be. I mean, I'm not a fan either of some of that, you know, installing dictators, supporting this regime over another. And as you can see, historically, it just hasn't worked very well for us. It doesn't work very well for anyone. Uh, But, you know, we don't do this sort of espionage. Now, one could say that um, Putin was just getting back Hillary Clinton for some of the information that she put out during his election that caused protests in the street. But look, his election was corrupt (laughs) and we we called them on it. And he got very angry at that. And revenge is the dish best served cold. So he sent a split, fleet of spies to specifically attack her during this this last election. Um, at the end of the day, that's something we could have prevented. And that's something we have to prevent into the future. I think we're already not like doing a good job. Yeah, I th- well, he's he's certainly not a good guy, but we're not doing a good job. If you look at the 2018 midterms, right? Um, I, I work for the cyber company called Carbon Black, and we did a quarterly, we do a quarterly threat report. And part of what we do is we send a bunch of uh, a threat of what we call a threat unit, we send them in into the dark web to look at you know what's being bought, what's being sold, what are the new attacks, you know, to prepare for these things. One analysis of the dark web showed that 20 different states, so voting uh, registration databases for 20 different states, including some of the battleground states, 12.5 million uh, records from Florida, for example, were for sale on the dark web. That's very useful if you want to launch any number of different uh, disinformation campaigns. And that's not a good, that's not good information for to, to be out there in the public. It makes people very concerned about whether they even should vote uh, or whether someone is going to vote for them and change their vote, even if that's very, very highly improbable. So we need to get better at this. And uh, our track record's pretty bad. And if you want something even scarier, it's something like 99% of political advertising spend goes to those 14 battleground states from the candidates themselves, because the other states don't matter at all. We had a- uh, yeah, that's scary as well. We had a we had an expert on talking a little bit more about that. Well, what uh, outside of your own work, not not being the hammer that sees everything as a nail, what are your biggest what are your biggest fears that you have in terms of domestic and international? I think right now my biggest fear there are two things that that truly concern me domestically. I think cyber attacks in the critical infrastructure, right? So when I talk about critical infrastructure, I'm talking about the poorly protected networks that that monitor and manage the flow of everything from power to water to natural gas to our communication grid, even uh, moving the data that we call money in in our financial markets. All of these different systems are under what we call probe attacks. And in, in recent weeks, there have been quite a number of probe attacks that have been identified, not only from the typical aggressors, which you know is Iran and Russia and North Korea, but but now China. And I think that the the international trade war mess that we're undergoing right now with China has made them far more aggressive in cyber attacks. On the flip side, you know, I'm not just a spy hunter. I, I hunted my share of terrorists. I get very concerned about this new, it seems like a new normal of uh, terrorism, this, this small, very, very difficult to detect and stop before it happens, terrorist attacks that are leveraging, you know, firearms primarily throughout the world. But I think we're going to see a lot more of it here if we don't do something more about the uh, the aggressive way that, that terrorism is, is functioning in the world. Those are the two things that keep me up at night. Um, I, I, I still, you know, just because I was in the know and I know too much about some of the terrorists attacks that we were about to thwart and I can't, we thwarted and can't talk about it. I still don't like to go to big public public collections of people. Um, maybe that, uh, that's a weird thing for someone who ends up a, a keynote speaker at events and stands up in front of a lot of people, which is a big collection of people. But it, it's been a while, for example, since I, I went to a Redskins game because I just I just know that those those sort of collections of people are targets and, and, and I get concerned. So those are the two things that keep me up at night. And it's so freaking bad. It, it's every week or two, there's another there's another terrorist shooting and it's it's a major problem that just does not seem to have a solution. I mean, the best solution I can kind of think of is as humanity becomes interplanetary, well, at least the people that want to live in the past will probably stay here as opposed to moving moving to the future. And that's a, yeah. that's a kind of ironic statement, but I don't know how you deal with something like this. 
Yeah, I don't either. Um, you know, in the in the old days, it used to be bombings, and, and and there's a lot that there is a lot that can go wrong when you are trying to put together a bomb attack where you need the different components. You're building it. Someone slips up. There's a lot of good FBI work that that's a little better at detecting that. You know, it's it's as we've seen, even in countries where you're not allowed to own a firearm, it's not hard to find firearms to get them across borders to get them in the hands of people who want to hurt people. And terrorists have found that that's, you know, it was led by ISIS, a new way of launching attacks that that can cause uh, as much fear and distress and terror as a, as a bomb that's um, detonated in a, in a public place. And of course, that still happens. We saw with the massacre at the, the Boston race as well. So terrorism worries me because it's a it's very easy to launch these attacks and they have the amount of damage they do is is extraordinary. I mean, I was flying through Turkey and through Istanbul days after that attack and, and, and the nightmare scenario that I saw within their domestic terminal just it, it still haunts me. I, I can still close my eyes and see the bullets in the glass. These kind of things don't go away for people who experience them. And that's the dangerous thing as well, because terrorism plays such a exponentially larger role than it actually plays in the world in terms of how it plays to us personally. So we create almost a slippery slope where terrorism leads to less and less and less freedoms. True. Uh, I mean, the the biggest expansion of government in our lifetime was the Department of Homeland Security, which was a direct, a direct response to the terrorist attacks of September 11th. And, you know, I, you know, my goal, <laughs> my goal is to have less government. I don't think the government tends to do things so well, but, you know, there you've got the, the freedom versus security and how much, uh, how much freedom do we have to give up in order to have those, that security? I, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember when everybody was extremely angry that we had to take our shoes off before we boarded planes. And now that's the new normal. You don't see people grumbling about it. So, so these sort of these sort of actions have long-reaching effects. Uh, we get used to them, but that's very unfortunate. I I truly miss the days when you could walk with your friend to the gate and see them get on the plane and you know and and have that have that uh, that moment together instead of the cell phone parking lots and dropping off at at ground transportation. Uh, but it, but these sort of attacks and and the way the world changes change us as well. In your opinion, do policymakers have these type of changes in place and or in mind and are just waiting for an excuse to implement them? For instance, Patriot Act, etc. I wish, but no, I don't think so. I think that one of our problems is that we are very reactive and that's that is a fault. I think that security itself is very reactive. And, and what I mean is, uh, just to just to break it down a little bit. Once upon a time, we had a truck bombing problem. If you remember, our embassies overseas were getting a, uh, attacked by by terrorists who would drive trucks filled with explosives into them. We we had uh, the Oklahoma City bombing here. We had a bombing over at our, Olymp- our Olympics in Atlanta. So we we had this problem, and so the government reacted, right? And come to Washington D.C. and take a and take a hard look around you. Look look beyond just the monuments and what you see, but you'll note that every government building has some version of you know what you can call a jersey wall around it. Sometimes they're big concrete planters, sometimes they're steel poles, sometimes they're the actual ugly jersey walls. But every building has a barrier, and that barrier is literally an offset where they've they've calculated how far a blast will reach before it hits the building, and that's going to stop that truck. I mean, just countless amounts of money around all federal buildings everywhere to prevent that problem. So what the bad guys do? They hijack planes and flew them into buildings. So we create the Department of Homeland Security and we align all the agencies with one goal to defeat terrorism and improve security. And everything changes. You have to take your shoes and jackets off before you can board a plane. Suddenly, there are massive numbers of TSA people. You have these long lines before you can get even on a plane. Flying is, it becomes abjectly miserable because of it all. And we, we lock it down. So now it's extremely hard to hijack a plane. Well, what do the bad guys do? They go back to trucks. Now they're just grabbing trucks and driving them into crowds. And uh, and we're reacting. We're reacting. Now, when you have uh, big rallies, political rallies, or big protest groups, 
they've started putting up big chain link fences to protect the people from <laughs> from from those who want to drive their cars into them. Uh, and, and the bad guys will just think of the next thing. My point is, as long as security is reactive to what the enemy is doing, the enemy will always be a step ahead because while they're launching their current attack, they're already thinking down the road to what can we do next that they won't expect. So if we truly want to solve a any kind of security crisis, we need to think like the bad guys and we need to think of that next thing they're going to do and prevent it before it happens. So yes, I wish that our policymakers were doing that. But all I see with uh, policymakers here in my city are people who are reacting to things that are happening rather than thinking and having the foresight to see down the road. But if we play that out to an end game, it's essentially the path to tyranny. When does the US have China's social credit system? Because that's what it that's what it inevitably leads to. Yeah, I don't. Well, you give too much power to the central government. And yes, you're going to get tyranny. We, we don't want to have too much of that. And we don't want to have too much. Uh, you don't want to give too much to security because security can be an excuse to grab too much power. It, too many things can be an excuse to grab too much power. Um, and, you know, in, in the political discussion, I'm always on the side of reducing the amount of power and authority the federal government has. But I am always behind uh, the federal government managing our military and our national security. How much of the problem is uh, in terms of the increases and a lot of what you've brought up currently is just based off of the amount of money that's in war and military? So the the contractors, everyone that comes in, everyone that essentially profits from having the state of the world as it is. Yeah, I don't buy into I don't buy into the theory that the war machine continues continues war. I think that most people in the world uh, would rather not have war. War's not good for not really good for an economy. It might be good for some few, but but not for everyone. I, I truly think that the world would rather not fight, but unfortunately there are some some that would like to and some who feel like it's the only way that they can they can impose their values on the rest of the world for whatever reason, be it be it religious or political. And so we need to defend ourselves. We stop defending ourselves. And that's, that is a recipe for absolute disaster. Is it also a recipe for disaster having so many different departments of intelligence, surveillance, military, etc., because then they're competing with each other in some sense? Well, the whole idea of the Department of Homeland Security was to to prevent and address some of the problems that, that you're exactly right we were having, where, for example, one of the reasons, like to get back to Robert Hansen, right, my spy, one of the reasons he was so successful for over two decades of espionage was because the FBI and the CIA weren't working together very well. In fact, they were at odds. And they did come together and formed a joint task force in order to try to find this mole that they knew was in the intelligence community. And they knew that the mole was somewhere within the intelligence community, even though they had no idea where, because our assets, our spies who were working for us in Russia were being arrested, imprisoned, and executed. And there was no reason for it. And so the the idea was the only way this could possibly be happening is if someone in the intelligence community is feeding them information about our spies. So they started hunting together, looking for anyone who has access. And that joint task force led to catching Alger Games. And initially, they thought we finally caught the spy, which was a CIA spy who was responsible for, for countless intelligence disasters. They thought, oh, we got him. And in fact, catching Alger Games made Robert Hansen feel very comfortable about reactivating himself. At the, during the fall of the Soviet Union, he had gone dormant for some time um, out of fear that someone in Russia was going to sell a file of information uh, that was going to point the finger directly to him. So he came back and started spying again. And, and I don't think that the FBI and the CIA quite realized, learned their lesson from there because we always were at odds with each other and working together in sharing that intelligence leads to, to great successes. I think the idea of the Department of Homeland Security was to align some of that together. And I think that that is a future that we really do need to continue to pursue because more information in, in great minds is, is a lot better than spreading it out. And, and although, on the other hand, you do need to compartmentalize it to some degree because otherwise there's too many avenues of access for the spies. So it's a, it's a very, very tricky uh, situation. How much of the problem is the government tries to do the right thing and pretty much just always me- ends up messing it up somehow? <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm I'm for small government. I, I think that the government should be more focused on specific, specific things that the government can do well, like, for example, the national defense quite, you know, our, our military is second to none in the world. I would love to see, and I think that this is starting to to take off like a firestorm, a lot more emphasis on uh, on a national cyber defense and cyber defense grid, a, an alignment and a collaboration between pri- public and private industry in our cyber defense. We're 
we're certainly starting to see that because the the best cyber companies are in the private sector right now, and uh, the government does rely on them. And and so I think that you know the, the more the more that we we give a bunch of people in government who I'm not sure are are really are our best and brightest the power to make decisions for us, the um uh, the more trouble we're going to get into. How do you think about this whole backdoor debate and the government's essentially knocking on the tech companies' doors and saying, "Give us your data, or else." Yeah, I'm not a fan of that. I think that when you do that, when you put backdoors into security, then you, by design, you're creating flaws in security. Like, for example, on uh, the former director of the FBI, Comey's uh, dispute with Apple, I was on the side of Apple. If we if we limit encryption for the FBI, then we're limiting encryption. And that means that the bad guys have uh, that much better chance of getting into the information on my iPhone. And I, I was certainly not a fan of that. Yeah, if you have a backdoor on your house, you have a backdoor on your house. Exactly. And, and maybe you have that there so the, the good guys can come in and take a look every once in a while, which I'm also not so much a fan of, but they can come take a look if it's a bad guy who lives there. But the bad guys can also get in and that can cause uh, countless harm to the good guys. So we've talked a lot about some of the problems with the world and some negative stuff. What are you most excited about these days and why? Well, I'm very excited about uh, the future of technology. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about the cyber world, and I think that there are technologies that are around the corner that are going to solve or at least get us a little bit better down the road for a lot of these problems. But I'm also very excited about where we are going to go with some of the more innovative technologies, especially in better and cleaner sources of energy. I was just reading a report that batteries are right around the corner going to last way longer, which is going to change how we're able to make better you know, technology portable. Uh, medical advances are, are constantly moving in leaps and bounds. But, but in, a, in a less direct sense, I'm very excited. I, I work with a humanitarian company named Global Communities as their general counsel. And it's a uh, charity that works all over the world. We really have been doing a good job of attacking poverty around the world. And, and you know, we began this discussion by talking about how the world, technology especially, has made the world a smaller place. I, I think that people everywhere have to truly continue to focus on the good deeds that we can do around the world. That's the way that we truly solve the world problems. Um, if if we make everyone around the world, if we give them some sense of success and destiny, uh, if, if we put them in charge of their lives, if we give them a pathway to success, then I, that is how we can defeat um, a good part of the terrorism that happens because there won't be bodies to feed the terrorist machine. So, you know, seeing those sort of things and seeing that the, the way that people respond to disaster, um, a lot of hope um, and puts a smile on my face for the future of the world. Yeah, I think if everybody does something, then we certainly move. We certainly move in that direction. How did you get involved with the initiative? With uh, global communities? Yeah. Uh, they were they were my, uh, after I left the FBI, I joined DLA Piper as an associate in the law firm. I did national security and government contracts law. Um, internal investigations of companies, things that really made a lot of sense for what I did in the FBI and translating that into law. But we also were encouraged by the law firm to to do at least 100 of hours of pro bono work, which is free billable hours for some charity uh, over a year. And my biggest client was a uh, 501c3 charity that did good works all over the world, doing primarily development work in um, improving the lives of, of people in some of the you know the poorest countries. And I, I love the work. It was some of my favorite legal work I did, which was the free stuff, right? I've always felt, you know, part of the reason I went to the FBI was because I've always felt that we all have a duty to give back. We all have a duty to serve. Even if you are very successful in everything you do, some part of what you do every day should be to serve others. And I I decided to leave the law firm, start my own business. And uh, at the same day that I decided to leave and start a business, they came to me and asked me to be their general counsel. And I said, I can, if I can do it part-time, because I'm also doing these other things. And they were okay with that because they couldn't afford a full general counsel. Um, you know, it's a charity. And uh, I only plan to be there a couple of years, but 10 years later, I'm still here. And the reason is, is because I, I truly feel that the work I do for a humanitarian charity is meaningful and important. And it, it makes me feel good at the end of the day before 
before I go to sleep. You went from James Bond hunter to to charity lawyer. It's quite a <laughs> it's quite a transition, and you you made a made an appearance in Hollywood as well. How's it? Uh, I still do all the spy hunting, so I I get to have my cake and eat it too. What do you think about Snowden? Because for a lot of people, that's the at least that movie is kind of the closest they've ever been to understanding what this world is really like. <laughs> well, uh, I can I can say I haven't unfortunately seen the movie. You know, it's it's on my list, but you know, I I, I don't have a lot of time to watch movies. I can say that in the Snowden case, I am I am not a fan, and I pity him. We will never see him back on U.S. soil. Uh, the, the he I think he was very naive, and for whatever reasons, the way he decided to seal that information caused very lasting damage, and it was just a boneheaded, dumb way of doing it. Uh, and now he is in Russia, and if you understand a little bit about the way that espionage and counterintelligence works, they'll never let him leave because all of the questions that Russian intelligence has been asking him for all these years, day after day, uh, is data that if he came back here, we would learn. Uh, the FBI would be talking to him, the CIA would be talking to him, the NSA would be talking to him, probably as part of his plea deal. And uh, the Russians don't want us to have that intelligence. So he's in a, he is truly between a rock and a hard place, but but one of his own making. I could definitely agree with that. But would you say, would you say on net it was positive or negative? Negative, net negative. I think that everyone should have known about one of the programs that he exposed, but in a supremely narcissistic way, he stole information in a way where he even admitted he didn't know what he stole and how much he stole. And that caused the NSA to have to scrap all of their programs and start over because they couldn't be assured that any of them hadn't already been compromised. That caused a lot of damage and, and damage that you know you and I aren't going to have an insight into because so much of it is classified. And then, of course, to make matters worse, he uh, he took the information on thumb drives. You know, giving it to newspapers wasn't as bad as then traveling through China and ending up in Russia. So, if you are intelligent, you have to assume that every scrap of information he has is not only in the hands of the Chinese but the Russians. So that put the NSA in a really bad position. I, I know at one point with my company, the Georgetown Group, we were looking into doing port security work, and and, and I was shocked to to find that the NSA had had to scrap all of the port security they were doing overseas. And what that means is we have assets overseas who are looking at everything from bills of lading to watching things get stored on containers that come over to the US. That's a major way that we do everything from present, preventing smuggling to stopping munitions that get in the hands of terrorists here. Uh, that had to be scrapped because it was one of the programs that he compromised. So no, he, he didn't do it in a very good way. And he was very aggressive in how he spied. You know, if it were me, I would have found a different way to have gotten out the information that that he truly felt that he he needed to get out to the public. But you'd be in an American jail for the rest of your life, probably Guantanamo and probably tortured because of the there's no whistleblower rules. You, yeah, I don't I don't know about that. I think that there are people he didn't try very hard to approach anybody. He didn't approach, for example, anyone in, in Congress. Um, you there are plenty of senators on the other side of the aisle who would have been happy to take a hard look if he had just mentioned something to them, even if he did it anonymously. I think he wanted to be famous, and he is. He's very famous, but and he's got a good life in Russia. His girlfriend gets to visit him. He, clearly, they've set him up for life. Who knows what else he's given them? Them, uh, you know. In in my estimation, he is not a hero. He is a traitor. Understood. Understood. I think we'll have to agree to disagree on that one. <laughs> There's there are many many people who you know. I, I think that he's a. Uh, you, you're either one way or the other. There isn't much middle ground. At least in my conversations with people about um, Edward Snowden. Yeah, I would I would say lots of good, lots of bad, and uh, the information is normally good when uh, people don't understand the the extent and breadth of it. But we could probably talk about all of that and a, a whole lot more for for quite a while. I know that you're meeting Bond for for lunch or dinner or something of that nature, right? You're going to get some martinis and you shake that not stirred or something something yeah. like that. You guys all dry do. dry martinis, shake and not stirred. Yeah, it's, you know the martinis end up. I think just because of the Bond movies, a, a fan favorite of everybody in the spy game. Of course. Although I'll go I'll go with a good uh, microbrew craft beer over a martini anytime. Perfect. You'll spend much less than Bond if you had to, <laughs> if you had to leave people with one thing, a quote, a call to action before you tell them a little bit more about you and where to find you, what would it be and why? I think that we need to elevate the way that we think about security and to, to take it out of cybersecurity or counterterrorism. I know we talked a lot about that. I think that in, in everything we do in life, if you're just looking at success, but in security, everything from personal security to cyber to counterterrorism, we need to be active. We need to act, not react. And the way we do that is by hunting threats before the threat hunts us. 
if we don't start taking an active role in protecting ourselves and, and looking for the threats that are out there, then they're going to surprise us. And that's the last thing that we want to happen. Reactive, much better than much better than passive. Where is the best oh, place for people to find you and learn more about you and what you do, Eric? Sure. So the best place to start is at my personal website, which is www.ericoneal.net. Uh, you can also just Google Eric O'Neill. And finally, you will see my pictures and not just tons of photos of Ryan Philippi. The other place that I like if if everyone, anyone would like to uh, ask me a question or uh, it just wants to sort of follow along with a lot of information I like to put out uh, on interesting topics in security and cybersecurity and counterterrorism and just other weird stuff I find is uh, on, I'm on Twitter at at E-O-N-E-I-L-L, at E-O-N-E-I-L. This has been a fun one. It's been original. And I'm sure that most people didn't expect to hear this when we started out. But I think exploring a lot of the outside areas is very important. So thanks for coming today, Eric. This has been a, this has been a lot of fun. You're very welcome, Matt. I had a great time. I had a, I had a lot of fun as well. And if you're listening, Putin, cheers. <laughs> awesome. Good one. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.